Dear Heavenly Father, we've opened Your Word, understanding its power, understanding its authority in our lives, and recognizing, Father, that what You have taken time and effort to provide to men over the centuries through the lives of so many, through blood and through effort, must itself, Father, be life for us then, and it must be where You would intend for us to put our time and our attention. So, Father, clear our minds and our hearts, open them to the words You've put before us, And teach us through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me begin by just bringing a point of reference from somebody you all know very well. Walt Disney, the the eminent scholar and uh, philosopher, Walt Disney. He was one time asked how it felt to be a celebrity. And he said, it feels fine, he replied, whenever he needs a good seat at a football game. But it never helped him, he said, make a good film. And it never helped him uh, get a winning shot in a polo game. And he said, it certainly never helped me bring my daughter into obedience. And he said, it doesn't seem to even keep fleas off our dogs. And if it can't solve the problem of a couple of fleas, then what good really is celebrity? And I wonder if that isn't how God feels sometimes in relationship to his people. I mean, he is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He is the righteous judge and king. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And yet when you look at the way he is treated for all his, quote, celebrity, for all his well-deserved glory, certainly among the unbelievers of the world, he's mocked, not worshipped. And even among the believers, even among those he calls his children, you and I, I think sometimes he receives a superficial form of worship in light of what he should expect to receive given who he is. What kind of worship then does God expect from his church? Let's be clear, what do I mean by worship? What do I mean by worship? Well, for some, it simply refers to that 35-minute part of your weekly service when you praise God in music. Or maybe for some of you, watching other people praise God in music. And that is the least of it. It is not to exclude that. That is a form of worship, to be sure. But that's only a small part. Worship in its fullest sense is so much more than what we typically think of when we use that word today in the church. The Bible commands that we would worship God as a part of our daily life, that our lives itself would be a form of worship to God, not a a once-a-week, 35-minute performance. Today I want to start with one specific, and I think perhaps the most important aspect of worship, and that is obedience as worship. We're going to start by looking at this concept of obedience as worship by looking at a story of David from the life of King David out of 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 13, beginning at the very beginning of that chapter, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities, with pasture lands, that they may meet with us, and let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And I'll pause there, because there's some background we'll probably need if we're going to understand what's about to happen in these chapters of First Chronicles. This scene in First Chronicles 13 takes place in the year 977 B.C. So almost a thousand years before Christ's appearance on earth. At this point in history, David has finally achieved his rightful place as king of Israel. You remember the prior king Saul had been reigning for a number of years and David being chased by Saul because David had been anointed the new king even though Saul was still on the throne at that time. 
If you were to go back just a few chapters in this book, chapters 11 and 12, you could read how David had received the support at that point of all of Israel following Saul's death, including the support of those who had previously been aligned with Saul's family. Remember, when a king died, it was natural to assume that his heirs would assume the place of the throne. But in the case of Saul, his death was not to bring another of Saul's family onto the throne. It was the God's intent that David would now take over that role. So it had taken a while for Saul's family to finally understand and agree with David's kingship. And by now, at this point, David has been coronated. And the whole nation now is rejoicing under their uniting of David at the throne. David promptly leads his nation into a conquest of Jabus. Now, Jabus was the city of the Jebusites. This is important because that city, as David took it from the Jebusites, he renamed it from Jabus to Jerusalem. And it became the city of David for that reason. So David, in his first act as king, conquers Jabus, the city of the Jebusites, makes it Jerusalem, makes it his new home. And now, having established himself in the city of Jerusalem, As king of Israel, chapter 13 gives us David's first official act as king seated in Jerusalem. And what is his first official act? He says, we need to go get the ark of the Lord and bring it here to Jerusalem. Now the ark here, of course, is the ark of the covenant. Anyone of practically any age has probably seen the movie The Raiders of the Lost Ark or any of the ones that followed that. There's a new one coming this summer. We're all excited about that, right? The Raiders of the Lost Ark was a fictional story about what would happen in present day life if the Ark of the Covenant still existed. But now we're back in 977 BC when that actual Ark did still exist. It was the golden chest that had been built by the Israelites while they wandered in the desert centuries earlier. And they built it according to God's instructions out of Exodus chapter 24. Now the Ark was important for a couple of reasons. The Ark held the Ten Commandments or what was left of them. And in addition to that, over time, it had taken on a couple of other ideas, or uh, other uh, artifacts, rather. The jar of manna that had been placed in there at one point, and the budding rod, or budding staff of Aaron, which was also in there. Neither of those two artifacts are in the ark at this point. They had subsequently been taken out. We don't know where or when. All that's remaining at this point is the Ten Commandments, the testimony, as it's called. That's one reason why it was important. The other reason was because of what it meant to the nation of Israel vis-a-vis or in relationship to their meeting with God. The top of the chest or the ark had the mercy seat guarded by golden angels or cherubim. This was the place that God had appointed for him to meet with men, with the high priest, with Moses. You can see that in Exodus 25. Let me just read you a couple of verses out of Exodus 25 so that you can appreciate the importance. uh, Verses 21 and 22. God saying this to the nation of Israel, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So the ark wasn't just an artifact. It wasn't just a token. It wasn't just some kind of religious uh, uh, you know, piece of equipment. This was actually the place on earth where God had chosen to reveal himself to men in tabernacle with men, in communion with men. He had said, now he could appear anywhere, we know that, but he had chosen to appear on top of the ark on the mercy seat. So from the standpoint of the nation of Israel, to be without the ark was to be without the ability to meet with God face to face in that way, in the way God had provided. So it became 
a very, very important artifact for the nation of Israel. With it came some very specific rules, some very specific ways it had to be handled, certain things you could do with it, certain things you couldn't do with it. For example, no one could look upon the ark. You remember in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they opened the ark at the very end and, of course, looking inside resulted in all the Nazis being killed? Well, in the way it's written in Scripture, it's not just that you can't look in it. That's true. But you can't look at it. It was to be covered at all times with a blue cloth and animal skins. And only when it was in its proper place in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was it to be, uh, were those things to be removed so that it could be seen. But, of course, being in the Holy of Holies, no one could see it there either. So no one was supposed to set eyes on it except the high priest and on the Day of Atonement only. The ark also served as a token of God's power and of his presence among men. In the desert, it always preceded the Israelites in their wanderings, showing them where to go. It held back the waters of the Jordan, if you remember, when they walked into the Promised Land for the first time. As soon as the ark and the, the Levites carrying the ark stepped into the River Jordan, the water was stopped so that the, the nation of Israel could cross into the Promised Land. It accompanied, accompanied Joshua. You remember when Joshua went around the city of Jericho? Those seven times, according to God's instruction, he carried the ark ahead of him the whole way. It had power in battle to help subdue Israel's enemies as God directed. But it was always to be handled a very certain way. Only the Levite priests could handle it. It had rings on the sides so that a pole would slide through the rings, a pole covered in gold, and then those poles would be held by the Levites as they carried it. And then only specific Levites, only the Kohathites, which was a, who was a son, Kohath was a son of Levi, only that branch of the Levites were allowed to handle the ark. All of this is in Scripture. All of this background, all of this, these rules and regulations. Once the ark left the desert, once they entered into the promised land, it began to rest at a place called Shiloh. Shiloh was the early headquarters, capital city of, of Israel, while it occupied Canaan. And then for many decades, for many centuries, that's where the ark resided, in Shiloh, in the tabernacle, in the tent that they had constructed according to God's instructions. Later, you'll know after David's day, when Solomon builds the temple, they move it into the temple. And that's where it lay until the temple was destroyed. It was always this physical representation of God's holy presence. It was unapproachable holiness. It was the visible reality of God dwelling on earth, but with that came all of that special requirement for handling and for approaching, because you were essentially approaching God in the way he chose to manifest himself on earth. All right, now back to First Chronicles chapter 13, now with that background. Why is the ark now the issue for David? Because it's not in Shiloh. At the point we're here in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, it's now residing in a small town called Kiriath-Yerim. Kiriath-Yerim. That's where it's sitting right now as David makes this decision. It's sitting in the private home of a man named Abinadab. And it's being cared for by that man's son, Eliezer. Now, how the ark found its way into Abinadab's home, you can read as well in 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 7. But here's the synopsis of it. The Philistines had taken it in a battle taken it back to Ashdod, put it in the temple of their god, Dagon, and viewed it as spoils of war. But of course, in the two years they had it, God showed them that they should not have it. I don't know if you know the story very well, but they uh, felt God's burning wrath in a very uncomfortable place. The scriptures tell us that he smite them with tumors, but the word is actually hemorrhoids. Giant, painful hemorrhoids was the way God inflicted punishment on the Philistines for keeping his ark. That was a big motivator, as you might imagine, for them to return it. 
the Philistines recognize there was problems. They have hemorrhoids. We don't like this. We don't understand this. And they think maybe it's the ark. But how do we know for sure it's the ark? Well, let's put the ark on a cart pulled by two mother cows who happen to be nursing their calves. Now, naturally, if I let go and say, go where you want, the cows are going to go right back to their calves because they're nursing. And the calves were nearby. So they set up a test. They said, well, let, let's see what happens. If they go back to their calves, we know it's not the ark. If they start walking back to Jerusalem, or to Israel, rather, with this ark on their back, on their cart, despite the instinct, which would have naturally had them going back to their calves, then we'll know God is at work. It's truly the ark, and we'll let it go. Well, that's how it actually turned out, as you know. They ended up letting it drive all the way back. And as it appeared in this little town, Beth Shemesh in Israel, the men of Beth Shemesh recognized the ark, Hey, the ark's back. Look at this. Carried mysteriously by two mother cows. Just wandered into our, into our pasture. That's exa- exactly how it happened. And they're so thrilled to see God return his ark that they immediately took the two mother cows and sacrificed them right there and then to God and burned them as a sacrifice. Those poor cows that delivered the ark back. Now, it, now you'll better understand why your UPS driver drops the package at your door and runs back to the truck. He's a little worried about that uh, Beth Shemesh incident from years ago. (laughs) Saul never made any attempt to go get it himself. And when it appears in Beth Shemesh, I want you to see what happens here. 1 Samuel 6.19, if you want to write it down for later. 1 Samuel 6.19. God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down, of all the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yerim and saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down here and take it. And the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadad on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So that's how it ended up in this strange little town, in this man's home. Here you see one of the rules of the ark being disrespected. God had specified in Numbers 4 that no one could look upon the ark or its contents or they would die. So the men of Beth Shemesh, apparently very excited about the return and just celebrating, and arguably they're here worshiping God through the appearance of this holy vessel, and in their excitement they look at the ark or look upon it or look in it, and as a result, God judges them for their disobedience. Now, if you're like me, you probably wonder at this point, just a moment anyway, was God fair to do this? I mean, couldn't he have overlooked their mistake and simply taken note of the fact that they were joyful for its return and that they were, in fact, in a sense, worshiping him? They were excited about seeing God bring back something so important and holy to them. Naturally, the people of Beth Shemesh now are in fear, as the scripture tells us. So they call for their friends in this little town nearby and they say, hey, we got something for you. Why don't you come get the ark? I wonder if the other ones knew what they were in for, right? They give it to this man, Abinadad, and they ask him to keep it in his home. He ends up keeping it for 20 years. 20 years it sits in this guy's house. You talk about a conversation piece. So it sits there for 20 years. Now this whole time King Saul could have gone down, retrieved it, brought it back to Shiloh where it it deserved to be. But Saul, for the most part, couldn't care less. Now back to 1 Chronicles 13 again. David seated on the throne about nine miles away. The city of Giriath Urim is about nine miles to the west of where Jerusalem is. Not very far. And David, now in the city, says, let's go get the ark. Now, why do you think he's interested in getting the ark? I mean, given its history, this isn't something you want to play around with, right? 
Given its history, why is he now suddenly so interested in retrieving the ark? And really, this is his first official act as king. Of all the things he could do, that was his first thought. Well, I would argue that based on what we see at the end of First Chronicles 15, where the ark actually arrives into the city, if you know the story, David is seen celebrating in the streets, dancing for joy, singing and leaping because of his excitement and his thrill over seeing the ark returned into the city. I would argue based on that, that we can fairly say that his interest was the right kind of interest, that his interest truly was to see God honored, to see the ark returned, to see it in its proper place, to see the nation of Israel once again worshiping their God in the way established by God in his word, to do what they were supposed to do. He wants to worship God. After all, we know David is called a man after God's own heart. And I think his heart here is true. So he initiates this campaign to return it. Now I want you to see what happens when he goes about doing this. First Chronicles 13, verse 5. So David assembled all Israel together, from the Shinar of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Urim. David and all of Israel went up to Baalal, that is, to Kiriath-Urim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. They, call, they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadad, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres and harps, tambourines, cymbals, with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edam, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had done. That story sounds familiar, doesn't it? Similar to the one we read about the men in Beth Shemesh, just at a different scale, one man here instead of many more. Here they are again, a group of men, celebrating the ark's return, trying to do the right thing by God. And again, it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt, as the saying goes, right? In this case, it's Uzzah. He puts out his hand. Now, again, it seems like God would give the guy some credit for trying. What he's worried about is the ark falling off the cart. And in light of not wanting to see that happen, he puts his hand up. I mean, this is reasonable behavior, isn't it? And yet, for touching the ark, which again was an offense under the law, God doesn't even wait for a future day. He judges him right then and there, and he, he brings him dead. I want you to take a second look at the details I just read. David, in the beginning of that passage, instructs the men to load the ark on a cart pulled by oxen. Now, you would expect that he's trying to be honoring here by virtue of using a new cart. There was a, a principle in the East, and it's still there today, where you have things set aside for sacred purpose, separate from those things set aside for common purpose. We call it consecrated. The word consecrate means to set aside for holy purpose. So the cart being new means that David did not take it upon himself to use some common cart, a cart that had already been put into use for common day purpose. No, he went and found a brand new cart, and he consecrated it. He set it aside for the holy and reverential use of transporting God's holy ark. So you even see in the fact that he used a new cart, evidence of David trying his best, it seems, to do the right thing by God. 
in the way he transported the ark. Again, Uzzah. You know, on the roads from this small town to Jerusalem, if you were to look on a map, it goes through a fairly mountainous range. It's probably the case that there was more than a few times when that ark looked a little unsteady and they weren't sure it was going to make it. Finally, it gets to the point where Uzzah is so concerned, he feels he better put out his hand or the ark itself may tumble. And he reaches and he touches, it offends God, and he is struck down. Why does God keep doing this? Why, in light of what we know is going on in the hearts of these men, why is God continuing to strike down men who appear to be trying to do the right thing? Well, the answer first comes out of Numbers. Numbers chapter 4. Just a few verses. Numbers 4.15, if you want to look it up later. Let me read you how God himself described the handling of the ark. Listen to the details here. He says in verse 15, When Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath, shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of the meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry. The responsibility of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, and the fragrant incense, and the continual grain offering, and the anointing oil. The responsibility of all the tabernacle, and of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment, or they will die. That's just a snippet of what's in that chapter. Do you see how specific God is? He says, I want these people to carry it. They're not to look at these things. They're to go in under very specific instructions from Aaron. You don't follow all this, you're going to die. That was in the word of God. He even specified in, in making sure that that family would never cease to exist because I want those people to always be available to carry my ark. Earlier in that chapter, if you were to read the whole chapter... He had specified that the ark had to be carried with those wooden poles that I mentioned earlier. So if you are going to lift it, here's how you do it. How did David choose to carry it out? How did David choose to carry the ark from that small town into Jerusalem? He placed it on that cart drawn by oxen. Now, I wonder where he got that idea. Where did he get the idea to put it on a cart and bring it on oxen? Well, I've got two ideas, two likely reasons. First, it's easier. It's a lot easier. I mean, it would have been very difficult for a small group of men to carry this very heavy object nine miles through mountainous territory, through you know, treacherous terrain, and get it back into the city. It's much more expedient. It's much easier to put it on a cart drawn by oxen. I can almost hear David's men saying now when they're thinking about how are we going to move this. You know, a construction project, 15 guys standing around with their hands in their pockets. You ever been on one of those projects looking at it saying, well, what are we going to do with this? I mean, I could hear him saying, oh, you know, that pole method, that went out long ago. <laughs> Everybody's using oxen and carts these days, right? That's the way we do this now. So I think the first reason David did this was simply because it seemed a better way to him to move it in that way. But I think there's also a second reason. I think there was precedent set. Think about how it got to where it is now in the first place. Remember how it got from Ashdod all the way up to Beth Shemesh? On a cart drawn by these mother cows who God used to bring the cart back from the Philistines. I suspect that whatever hesitation David might have had in the first place to use this method was probably put to rest when someone reminded him, oh, don't worry, David, that's how God got it here in the first place, so he's good with this, it's cool. We'll put it on a cart, we'll take it the rest of the way. I mean, God's not going to have a problem with this, right? He did it the first time that way, why would he have any problem with us doing it that way? 
Well, David failed to recognize at least two differences between himself and the Philistines when he made that assumption, if he made that assumption. The first would be that God himself was responsible for bringing the cart back from the Philistines. The Bible tells us that the Philistines devised this method, this, this way of determining, is God at work or is it something else causing us this, this calamity? And as they separated these mothers from their calves and set it all up, they didn't touch it after that. That, in other words, they let it go and they let God determine where it would go at that point. So, in, a, in effect, it wasn't the Philistines who brought it back on a cart, it was God. And I argue that if God is going to bring it back, how is he going to get it back from the Philistines but under the power of that cart and those mothers? The second thing David overlooked was the fact that he and the Israelites enjoyed the benefit of God's revelation in God's word, while the Philistines did not have that. The Philistines never had God's law. They had no understanding of God's requirement for how to handle or move the ark. Remember, they had been looking at the ark and even looking in the ark up to this point. They haven't been struck down by God. Now, they've been struck in a different way. Some might argue worse than death, but... They hadn't been killed, which isn't to say God's anger didn't burn against them. It is to say that with greater knowledge, with greater insight, comes greater responsibility. That, as God tells us in his gospel, the ones who have been given more insight will be judged according to their insight. As believers, what we know drives the accountability that we have before God. That's a biblical principle. So they didn't know God's requirements for handling. They had no idea how to handle that ark. Secondly, even if they had known, let's say, for example, someone had told them, oh, this is how you handle the ark. They had no Levitical priests to go find and ask to carry the ark. They didn't have the means to comply, even if they had known. So when David looks at that precedent, perhaps, and decides that, hey, if it's good for them, it's good for us, he's drawing a comparison between apples and oranges. What they did and what God allowed them to do has no bearing on what they were to do as Israelites, given what they had been revealed, what had been revealed to them in God's word. So despite those important differences, he's determined to follow the Philistine example. And by following the example of the ungodly world, what happens? He sets aside the law of God and Uzzah dies. And I think it's fair to say that Uzzah's death is on the hands of David. For his leader in that case, David allowed it to take place in the way he did. Uzzah was sort of an innocent victim of David's mistake. Now I suspect, and I think this is true anywhere I go, that the church generally struggles with a story like this that we would struggle just a little bit with something that seems patently unfair. It seems unfair to us, perhaps, that God would strike down the men of Beth Shemesh and then later Uzzah in the time of David's move when all they wanted to do was worship God and their joy over the ark led them to make a few mistakes along the way. And yet God seems completely unmerciful in light of those mistakes. You know what we want? We want God to give credit for trying. We want God to give them credit for what's in their heart, for what, they, for what their excitement wanted them to do, rather than for what their actions led them to do. We expect them to overlook their mistakes. We want them to see credit given for desire, for motivation, don't we? In other words, we want God's ways to be like man's ways. That's what we want. Because when we see somebody doing the wrong thing, but doing it for the right reason, what we tend to do is overlook the mistakes and give them extra credit. Robin Hood, he stole but it was from the rich. And he gave it to the poor, so that makes it all good. Right? That's the principle behind why that story is seen as a hero and not as a thief. Because we want to see extra credit given for why they do do what they do. Or how about in our own lives? When we kind of smile in approval as our kids lie to grandma and tell them how much we love her cabbage stew. 
Right? I mean, it's, it's okay because, after all, their heart's desire is to not hurt grandma's feelings. So what I'm prone to believe is that we look at a story like this with eyes that we have, human eyes, with our human heart and our human ways, and we divorce it from what God has said in his word and his ways, and we judge him in light of how we believe things should operate. We find it a bit unfair. Because, after all, it's the thought that counts. No, it's obedience that counts. It's obedience that counts. Remember the words of Samuel when he spoke to Saul, the king, as Saul commits offense after offense after offense against God. And finally, he has the last straw mistake. And Samuel comes to the king, Saul. And Samuel says this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the, ra- the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Samuel says in those words that the ultimate and the purest form of worship can take place only in our obedience to God's word. For all that we would like to say and think about our lives and about our behavior before God and our desire to be a worshiping, worshiping people and our desire to be a people that love and respect the God that has saved us, the reality of Scripture is that the only measure God uses for that purpose is our obedience. Obedience is the measure. Because what is a sacrifice? In the case of, as Samuel put it to Saul, why, why did they sacrifice in the first place? What was the point of sacrifice? To cover sin. Well, here's a newsflash. When you don't sin, you don't need sacrifice. If obedience had been the way of life, sacrifice would never have been necessary. I'd rather you not make the mistake than have to come to me with a mistake having been made and now you have to cover for it. That was the point he was making to Saul. Because Saul was all about sacrifice. He was thrilled to sacrifice left and right. That was an easy thing anyone could do in their own power. And it's much easier, frankly, than obedience. Much easier than obedience. Similarly, it's very easy to come into a building once a week, perform the 35-minute music, participate in that, confess our sin, and then on Monday morning go back to doing what we want to do because, after all, we just went to church. We've got a pass for a week that we think of our duty here as somehow absolving us from the responsibility to be in worship the other six days of the week. The Word of God stands as an unchanging, uncompromising standard of obedience. And we are not free to alter God's standard regardless of our good intentions. And that was the lesson he was teaching the nation of Israel in their handling of his ark. He had prescribed a proper way to handle the ark. And David and the men of Beth Shemesh knew precisely what that was. The word of God had not been lost. They understood the requirements of the law. So ironically, while they were intent on worshiping God by transporting the ark to Jerusalem, in the midst of that, they were actually demonstrating the opposite of worship by virtue of their disobedience and how they handled it. The opposite. Remember Samuel's word? He said, insubordination, someone who runs against authority and against the instructions of those over them, insubordination, he said, is equal to idolatry. We can make the same mistakes that David and those men make today. We can think that God will judge our intentions rather than our choices and our decisions and give ourselves basically freedom to go far from God's word because we trust he knows we meant well. The church, we're told in Scripture, is called to worship in two things, remember? In spirit and in truth, which essentially means we are to worship first in the power and the direction of the Holy Spirit, according to the Spirit's leading in the church, 
And then secondly, truth being the Word of God. Christ being the embodiment of truth, but truth now in our hands being the Word of God. But in some churches today, we'll find that the power of God in the Holy Spirit has been replaced by a sort of emotionalism, by an experiential kind of, uh, of church worship, where it's about what I feel, about the emotion of the moment, about the presentation in the room. That's worship, as opposed to the Spirit doing anything in me personally. And that, secondly, the truth has been replaced in some cases by sort of pop psychology, that heartwarming 25-minute sermon with a cute story at the beginning and at the end and the tearjerker somewhere in the middle. If I get that weaved together just right, I've left with a heartwarming message that does nothing for me, actually, once I leave the building because it has no power behind it because it's not the Word of God. God isn't interested in our good intentions. He's not impressed with our better ideas or our improvements on the way it's always been done or on the latest initiatives. He's not impressed with anything except obedience. And if you're interested in worshiping God, start with that, and you have your recipe. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells it this way in verse 1. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We would present our bodies, which means daily, all day, every day, present your bodies as a means of worship to God. Through what way? In what way, he says? By becoming, he says, the proof of God's will. That we would prove God's will. Prove here means establish it, make it known, show it to the world. If you want to show people who God is and what his will is, live it out. And in doing so, you're worshiping him. And then what you do in here on a Sunday is just an extension of that. It's just another manifestation of that. That's what God expected out of David. If you want to see how the story ends, there's actually a happy ending. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Now jump down to verse 11. Then David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for Levites, for Uriel and Asiah and Joel and Shemaiah and Eliel and Aminadad. And he said to them, You are the heads of the father's households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. I love what he says. He had an outburst against us because we did not seek him according to the ordinance. I think that's probably a message the church couldn't hear enough these days. To seek God is one thing, but to seek him outside of the means by which he is provided means nothing. In their day, it was according to the law. In our day, we live under the dispensation of grace. So the way in which God has provided for men to seek him today is first and foremost through his son. That by knowledge and faith of his son and his work on the cross, we have an opportunity to come boldly before the throne. 
Apart from that way, it's no different than David trying to carry the ark on a cart. The intentions of someone who seeks God in the wrong way, being what they are, gives them no benefit to a God who has said, I've given you the one way, obey, and you will have access. And to those who have now come to faith, the same rule applies. He has given to us through the Holy Spirit access to the Word of God, to the knowledge that will transform us into the likeness of Christ. When we seek that transformation in other ways, outside the Word of God, through the wisdom of men, through what the world teaches, then expect much the same outcome that the nation of Israel experienced in their day. You may not be struck down, not in that sense, but you might. But at the very least, you're going to fall short of what you're, achieve, what you're trying to achieve, of the knowledge of Christ, of the peace that comes from that knowledge, from the opportunity to be in service to him, frankly, from the opportunity to worship in every sense of the word. David here recognized his mistake, returned to the word of God, did it the right way, and God received it as such. It went into the city with joy, set up residence, and became a part of the future temple. Let's follow David's example. And yet, let's do it without the stumbling. How about we, how about we take out the part where we try it our own way? Whether it's individually in our own walk, and I would argue as well corporately as a church, in all the decisions that this church will make, the thought ought to be at all times, are we making decisions that coincide with what God has revealed for the church in terms of its mission and its purpose and, its, and the way in which it's to operate as it gathers? Or have we started to look at what the world thinks is now the newest, greatest thing, the cart and the ox instead of the old guys and the poles? <laughs> and as a result, we think the new and better idea is going to carry us forward where the old one perhaps we thought didn't. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His rules aren't changing. His, his good ideas were the first ideas. We only have to see them as such and follow them. Obedience would be our first and best form of worship. Let's go to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may our hearts be hearts, Father, directed toward you in obedience. Because, Father, we know you speak to us all the time. You speak to us in your word. You speak to us through the example of your Son, and now as well through the Holy Spirit, constantly, Father, convicting us of sin, leading us, Father, to new pasture, to things that you have called us to do and places to serve, Father, in new relationships. You close the door in one job, Father, even as you open a door to move us somewhere new. And all of these things, Father, are taking place in a life that should be in obedience to that direction. And Father, we know that at times we stumble, we do as David did, with good intentions. Nonetheless, Father, we, we choose to go our own way, thinking our ways are better. We ask your forgiveness, knowing that you have forgiven us through Christ, but then ask for, for the power, Father, to avoid that mistake in the future, to be obedient in all we do. Father, as we choose to worship you here and elsewhere with obedience as the first way to do that, Father, we pray you'd also give us opportunity to to worship you in, in other ways, through our tithes, Father, through our service, through our use of our gifting, as well, Father, through the praise of music and the words we would speak in prayer. But, Father, in all these things, let our lives be a pleasing sacrifice to you so that we may stand as a testimony to the world. Lord, I pray for, as well, a blessing on this committed and dedicated gathering of believers, Father, that in all the time and effort they've put in in years past and and even now, as they gather in your name, that you would reward that and bless that, Father, with a greater harvest and with an opportunity to serve even more. And individually in their lives, Father, that they would see the blessing of a Father who knows how to give good gifts. 
And all these things, Father, we do in a way we pray to bring you glory. If it be your will, may we come back again next week to continue in our studies of your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.